Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Phil Bowder joins us now here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York, and uh, great to have you with us. Suffice to say, uh, this was a, a bit of a surprise for, for you as it was for many people, I, I think. Uh, yes, clearly the lead had been uh, narrowing yeah. <laughs> spectacularly, but yes, uh, uh, to have actually a minority government and uh, the Tories coming out of this uh, much diminished, especially Mrs. May, is a surprise. As you, you piece together what happened here, what what do you attribute it to? I mean, these are these are early hours yet. We don't know a whole lot still about turnout, who voted, who didn't vote, etc. Uh, but what do you attribute it to? Well, first, this was not a Brexit election. Uh, uh, the British people, for better or worse, consider Brexit a done deal. They don't know what it means yet, but, uh, but it's going to be out. So it became an issue about the kind of Britain they want to live in. And... Um, Apparently, on a number of key issues, Mrs. May managed to uh, push the wrong button, especially on the dementia tax and other social economic uh, issues. What what happens uh, from here, uh, as you see it? I mentioned the negotiations that are taking place. We expect the, the, the prime minister to go to Buckingham Palace. That indicates that uh, she has gotten some commitment here that a coalition could could be formed. How, how tenuous a coalition would that be, do you think? And what does it mean for, for the negotiations over Brexit that are scheduled to take place, I think, in just 10 days' time? It's, it's very hard to say. Yeah. I mean, clearly, they have a majority, you know, three 19 conservatives, 10 uh, Democratic uni uh, unionists, and uh, so they can govern whether they will last you know, beyond the fall or whether there will be another general election, uh, which, of course, where the Tories wouldn't enter uh, with Mr. Uh, May, Mrs. May in the leadership. It's, it's all possible. I think we're going to see a negotiation starting in a very different tone from uh, the one that Mrs. May hoped that she start with, though confident with you know, a personal mandate, there is no mandate, and uh, I think Britain will end up uh, playing a lot nicer. Who's going to who's going to set that tone? Is that going to be the the EU taking advantage here of, of a, a change in dynamic? Is it going to be a chastened Theresa May if in fact she uh, continues to serve as, as prime minister? Who's going to set the tone going forward here in those negotiations? Well, it's a two-party yeah. negotiation, right? <laughs> right. So I, I don't think that uh, uh, you know, Mrs. May clearly will you know, jointly determine the tone, but the tone is going to be, I think, very much less assertive and aggressive and uh, you know, no deals better than uh, a bad deal type of stuff that was in the air until not that long ago. You mentioned that it's, it's, uh, it was not a Brexit vote. What are the, the kind of global ramifications of the vote that we had yesterday? Are they diminished as well? In other words, is, is the outcome from this going to have less of an effect than uh, the outcome of the vote we had last uh, last June? Well, what was interesting in, uh, in this election was that uh, in Britain, unlike in France, but like in Germany, the traditional you know, two large parties are back. Yeah. Right? This is you know, the opposite of what happened in France and 
it hasn't happened yeah. everywhere, but here are two key European countries where the old sort of centre-left and centre-right right. are dominant again. All the minority parties are, you know, flunked out. Mm. Let's come back to that. That's an important point. Phil and Bader with us. Miss City, good morning. David, you're back. back I, I had a dream last night that you sat on the runway <laughs> at Reagan that for may have four happened. hours. That may have, that may have happened. <laughs> that was no dream. You're still there. <laughs> Bloomberg Surveillance this morning with all of our news flow, and thanks to our team for really working Truly around the clock over the last 48 hours. I love your idea, Professor Bowder, of we've come full circle back to two parties, which I guess goes back to the 70s and the 80s, almost pre-Thatcher. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would put it to where we are. Where does labor fit in to labor? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the unions, that's the big difference. The atomization of mm-hmm. any labor market now makes it totally different than the nostalgia we have for another time and place. Yeah, the, the Labour Party, in terms of ideology at the moment, is very much, in terms of the leadership, like the Labour Party of Michael Foote in the 70s. But clearly the role uh, of the unions in the economy is much weaker. They still have a significant say within, inside the Labour Party. But yes, from that perspective, uh, we are not back where we were before because, as you say, the atomization of the labor market, uh, the fact that organized labor is almost a contradiction in terms, that really is a qualitative change that uh, we see in this country as indeed we see in in continental Europe. A critical question then this morning, and I haven't had time to ask it with the news flow, is this a generational election or is it just another election? Is there a shift going on almost as in Japan? It's interesting. In some way... Uh, as usual, the answer is yes and no. It's a generational election in the sense that uh, Labour got voted in by the young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, Labour's leadership, the one that inspires <laughs> these young, uh, is uh, very you know, past generation. So it is, uh, it's, a, it's a very strange concoction of uh, youngsters going uh, à la recherche du temps perdu. Wow. There you go. Is there is there resonance here with what we saw? <laughs> is there resonance here with what we saw with with Bernie Sanders uh, in the U.S. Very you, you much so. Yes, yeah. yes. How does Jeremy Corbyn emerge from from all from all of this? Uh, he was the one everyone had been talking about. Who's, is he going to continue to lead his party? Uh, is this a, a victory in some small light for for him? In other oh, words, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, you know, he led his party into this election. People thought that he was going to bomb. And he's done much better than expected. No, he, he gains from this uh, at a personal level, and his wing of the party gains from this, yes. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah. No, go ahead, please. I insist you were on the runway at Reagan <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> how, how do you see Theresa May, uh, you know, a few months in here, settling into this job as, as prime minister? We've now had occasion to listen to her deliver many important speeches, some of which were uh, tied to, to, to terrible events, terrorist events uh, in the country. But how, how do you see her in that role? How is she doing as prime minister uh, in terms of the duties of the job, of, of taking care of the country, of, of addressing national tragedies and big, big events and of plotting a path forward? Well, unfortunately, we haven't seen any real ideas or initiatives mm-hmm. from her. Uh, deep thoughts like Brexit means Brexit and enough is enough are not a substitute for policies, right? So I think she has, to me, um, uh, got a lot to prove that she can actually lead um, by addressing concrete issues with concrete policies. And unless she does that, I don't think she'll last long. 
Has her reactiveness been because of the fact that Brexit is so all-consuming? Do, do you see it being that, that she's myopic or short-sighted, or, or is she just dealing with what she has to do? That being, this is this is the overarching biggest issue that this government has to deal and, with. Uh, um, she comes from a background which is home office, yeah. of the Department of the Interior, if you want. Yeah. And so international cross-border issues are simply not part of uh, uh, what you thought yeah. about, and it shows. We are waiting. At some point, we may have comments from the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, we've got all sorts of feeds into our world headquarters and into our radio operation here. The Jaguar waits outside of 10 Downing See, Street. I, was, I said you love this to, stuff, Tom. To I said you. <laughs> migrate the Queen. I mean, rather, the Prime Minister over to see the Queen. Jaguar. Jaguar. Jag, Jaguar. 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 Anyways. Uh, it is silver, uh, and the cat is not. Been Larry seen. the cat will he Larry be the there? Cat no, we don't know. Been seen a separate car. Down the yeah. Separately, North Nicole Sturgeon <laughs> is taking questions and speaking. At, I believe it's Butte House. Professor Bowder, B U T E Butte House, I think. Um, I am I'm, in, in Scotland. I'm the Butte of a lot of jokes here. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Butte, but Butte House, there it is. But she is speaking after the SNP was defeated, Alex Salmon even losing his seat, among other worthies. And the clear zeitgeist this morning is she will tilt away from an independence mm-hmm. focus to an SNP Brexit. Uh, Professor Bowder, within your wonderful understanding of the culture and politics of Europe and the United Kingdom, how does Remain deal on this interesting morning. Remain in Northern Ireland. Remain in Scotland. How lonely are they this morning? Uh, Remain have have a lot of company now. They've got company in England. You think there's been a shift back to Remain? Well, in a sense that uh, uh, the, not necessarily Remain, but the definite desire for a softer uh, Brexit than what Mrs. May seemed to be Hinting at uh, uh, step away ev- uh, from a uh, you know, no deal is uh, is better than uh, than a bad deal. So um, I don't think, uh, regrettably, that no. remain is uh, is an option at this point. The UK will have to leave the EU before it can apply to rejoin. But uh, I think the softer landing for all concerned is right. is good news. The Uber driver showed up. The prime minister's <laughs> Jaguar the Uber driver from <laughs> Buckingham Palace. The new normal yeah. in the UK. The Uber driver. <laughs> said, said six minutes. Bill and Batter, what stood out to you yesterday? Uh, the the president of the ECB was in Estonia, not in in Frankfurt, but uh, in Estonia, delivering that uh, uh, new policy statement and taking questions from from reporters. What's the, what was the key headline for you of, of what Mr. Draghi said yesterday? Well, no surprises, yeah. right? They're not going to cut rates. Uh, it makes no sense to cut rates when you're at the zero lower bound unless you're going to get rid of cash, which they won't. And uh, they will go easy on uh, on the tapering of the of the balance sheet. This is both entirely uh, expected. Uh, I think uh, the fact that there is uh, a concern about the continuing weakness of inflation is also not a surprise. We have uh, the flattest Phillips curves since uh, you know, Mr. Phillips invented the Phillips <laughs> curve. And um, uh, there, I think has, there's no admission yet that uh, they're out of ammo, but um, uh, they're clearly uh, by saying we're not going to cut rates and 
if you'll taper more slowly, or effect, uh, no, he has basically recognized uh, reality that the, the ECB, in terms of the ability to stimulate the economy, is uh, now a bit player. Tom, let me pull back the surveillance curtain here a little bit. Uh, we take these press conferences uh, after the, the policy statements were announced, and, and you and I listen and decide how long we're going we're gonna to take it. We rarely take it in full. You were very engaged with what uh, with Mara Draghi was saying. Yeah, yesterday. it started out dry as dust. You mean Bowder nodded off over his Citigroup <laughs> audience. Mm -hmm. And then, seriously, Professor, it really clicked in. I mean, he really went at it about how he does not have the fear that so many of the hand-wringers have. You mentioned this earlier this morning. You see it as a very stable process mm. to do what he has to do on the balance sheet on normalizing rates. Yes. Well, you got to give me a bigger answer on a Friday than yes. <laughs> the balance sheet. You can do that on Wednesday. The balance sheet is a non-issue, yeah. right? Um, uh, from an economic and uh, technical perspective. It's a bit, bit a political issue because the central bank, especially on the asset side of its balance sheet, has all kinds of rubbish that the central bank should not have. They engage in credit policy, in quasi-fiscal policy, and that's an issue. But from a technical point of view, uh, you know, as soon as they get away from the zero lower bound, you know, they can play with interest rates again, even if the balance sheet is likely to be 40% of GDP by then. Uh, about twice uh, the size of the GDP of the Fed's balance sheet, incidentally. At the uh, the two-day Fed meeting next week, give us a, a bit of a preview for what you're looking for there. Uh, it seems like consensus is we're going to see rates go up. When it comes to the balance sheet, what are you hoping to hear from, from the Fed next week? Well, just um, you know, a, a clear statement mm. that uh, they are you know, uh, looking at this very seriously, working on the communication strategy, uh, wanting to avoid... Uh, recurrence of taper tantrum nonsense, and uh, that they will do this in a way that will not upset, well, especially yeah. uh, the RMBS market, and uh, that they'll do it slowly, gradually, and that they're in no yeah. hurry. Willem Bauder, thank you so much for your commitment to surveillance. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. David, I'm, I'm upset. The first lady, uh, the former first lady, Michelle Obama, making an uproar about the president wearing his tux for eight years. The same tux for eight years. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can I do a shout out this yeah. morning? I got my tux at Trash and Vaudeville down in the East Village, <laughs> and that was like 14 years ago. Yeah. John Tucker, your tux goes back. You got yours goes back like 23 years, right? Yeah, I got it from Jerry Mahoney. Oh, Jerry yeah. Mahoney. Anyways, I I, I think <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> Obama eight years is just breaking in a tuxedo. <laughs> Stay with us worldwide. Yeah. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Much more next. Now, what a perfect guest to wrap up the week. Jeffrey Rosenberg is at BlackRock, and what he does is he brings a synthesis of what we do, economics, finance, and investment, with prodigious math skills out of Carnegie Mellon. Are we in a normal distribution, Jeffrey Rosenberg? Is this a normal environment we're in in terms of financial stability? Thanks, Tom, for that. Uh, no, we're certainly not. And you know, just to, to just to sort of talk about the distributional outcomes after the uh, UK election. You know, one of the things that this has resulted in is is really raising the uncertainty around 
both sides of the distribution. Does this increase the odds of a hard Brexit? Possibly. Does it increase the odds of a softer Brexit, the change in the leadership that you just talked about and what yeah. might uh, result from that? Has has shifted the distribution and, and increased the uncertainty of over what this means for the Brexit. That's certainly one of the, the, the main takeaways this morning. Uh, I'm fairly confident they were paying attention to this on Threadneedle Street. There's a BOE, BOE meeting next week uh, in London. How are they processing uh, what's transpired here over the last 24 hours? So again, you know, the issue is what is the implications for the UK economy of the Brexit negotiations and what kind of uncertainty does that along the way translate into for the currency? What does the currency do to inflation and inflation expectations? And what does the uncertainty do to the performance of the economy? If, if anything, un- uncertainty here is going to keep the BOE more accommodative for a longer period of time as they, as they watch what the exit negotiations mean for uh, the fundamental performance of the UK economy. We were, we were looking forward to there being a, a limited amount of political risk after the elections uh, in France just a couple of weeks uh, ago. Does this add more political risk? Uh, does political risk stay the same? How do you, how do you view that? So, you know, and, and shameless plug here, we, we just published on, on the BlackRock website a, a whole treatise on, on political risk and, and, and the rise of populism and, and, and some of the changes. And certainly in the aftermath of the French election, the tide appears to be actually decreasing in terms of uh, the kinds of political risk, particularly when we're focused uh, on Europe, that are associated with the breakup risk. You know, the kinds of risks. Look at the market reaction this morning about yeah. the UK. This is not systemic risk. This is not okay. spillovers. This is important to the UK domestic economy. It's important to UK-related assets, but it's right. having a very minor impact relative to the kinds of conversations we had when we were talking about political risk, where it really was affecting global market right. positioning, global markets. So certainly there appears to be a bit of decline. We had had that risk around the, the lead-up to the French elections, but the very surprising result appears to be dampening that. Some risks around that, certainly, because you've got the, the potential early call for elections in, in, in Italy. But relative to the kinds of volatility po- po- politics have driven in terms of uh, financial markets, yeah. today's event certainly seems okay. much, much lower. Well said, but... The theme of the week, away from all this fallaroll that we've been dealing with, is the idea of an inflation vector going the wrong way. Does the politics subdue nominal GDP? Does it put a dampening on the animal spirit? And maybe we do get decent real GDP, but the inflation just isn't there. Is that an outcome that you and Cher Yellen have to consider? So, so it's a really interesting uh, question around what the politics implies for the inflationary outlook, because we've got to separate the time horizons over which we're talking about. The, the inflation going the other way, Tom, that's the near-term dynamic. That's the CPI figures. Next week, yes. we're going to have a CPI report, a lot of focus. That's about the near term. What's one of the implications of the UK election? It's out in the tail of the distribution, but the win, 
according to the Labor Party, uh, is uh, raising the odds of potentially a political shift towards more fiscal expansionary policies, more debt and deficit policies, which is inflationary and, and is certainly an impact of greater issuance of government debt and potentially higher risk premium around that. It's not in the market today. It's not part of the whole conversation around near-term impacts, but the shift towards more accommodation, more fiscal policy expansion, more debt and deficits is a push towards higher inflationary environments. Has what we've seen here in the U.S. vis-a-vis fiscal policy, a lot of talk about it for a time, a lot of optimism about it, changed how you view the potential for it in other countries? Well, you know, we, we, we've had a big, uh, you know, turnaround in terms of uh, expectations around fiscal policy, the initial enthusiasm uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, certainly followed by yeah. an unwinding uh, of that. You know, the fiscal policy is run by politicians. So the political uncertainty and the potential swings makes it harder for markets to price what those outcomes are yeah. relative to monetary policy run by technocrats run under various forms of, we don't want to get into the whole debate about how hard and fast they follow the rules, but there is a reaction function that monetary policy tries to show to the market so that there's a little bit more uh, predictability, if you will. On the fiscal policy side, very hard to predict that. And so the swings here, and the UK, you know, again, pivoting off of last night's results, the swings here are, are really head-spinning for financial financial markets. And so it it, it widens the scope of uncertainty. Markets have a hard time sort of pricing those outcomes. I I got about eight more questions, but no time. Jeff Rosenberg, right well, we'll see your research note uh, this weekend or into Monday as well. He is with uh, BlackRock uh, this morning. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. After what we saw yesterday, the bright lights, the showbiz of the Comey testimony, how about a move back to reality? Listen to this sentence, folks. He strengthened priority programs to fight public corruption, transnational criminal enterprises, and violent gangs, and work to protect our children uh, and uh, cherish civil rights. That would be an essay by Robert Mueller, director of the FBI, on one Chris Wecker as he left the FBI 11 uh, years ago. Uh, Chris Wecker, good morning. Good morning. You worked with Mr. Mueller. There's this odd linkage now between the special counsel and the former acting director. How do you perceive that Mr. Mueller will move forward after the testimony yesterday? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's a couple of revelations yesterday, and, and question marks were or questions were answered in that the the uh, Jim Comey's interactions with the president have are now in the hands or are, are being examined by special counsel Mueller. That was an open question until yesterday. So his notes, his memos, they're all in the hands of former director Mueller. That's one significant thing. Yeah, they know each other pretty well. Uh, 
At one time, Robert Mueller, as director of the FBI, reported to Jim Comey as the deputy attorney general. That's the reporting hierarchy uh, and still is, was and is. So they, they certainly know each other. But I will say that uh, former director Mueller has the blinders on. He, he knows a lot of people. In those circles, it's not unusual for these people to be very familiar with each other. Yeah. I don't think it's going to affect him one bit that he knows Jim Comey, and I think Jim Comey has, will cooperate fully with that investigation. That's about the best uh, the thing that you can say about that relationship. Chris, let me ask you, there was a comment from the House Speaker yesterday that uh, we've seen some missteps here by this president because he's uh, new to the job. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but that was the thrust of what the House Speaker uh, had to say. Contrast that with what we saw and heard yesterday uh, from James Comey. He is somebody who, during the course of that almost three-hour hearing, really came across as somebody who knows about the way government works, knows about the way separation of powers and agencies works. Uh, there were indications here that he uh, did some things deliberately so that uh, we could see a, a, a special counsel. Tell us a bit more about that, the way that uh, James Comey knows how to maneuver and make his way through the, the system down in Washington. Well, it, that was a big reveal yesterday that he basically manipulated the system to, to get a special counsel appointed. But I think what, what you also have to consider is that Jim Comey laid out his own failings yesterday. And, and I've, I'm a big fan of his. We've worked together. I think he has total integrity. I don't think he lies. I think he tells the truth. But he, but he also showed how weak he was in not pushing back at the president when he felt like something inappropriate was going on. That's one thing. I would have expected much, uh, much more courage and fortitude and decisiveness on his part. And secondly, he's now painting a picture of a mandate from the president or a directive from the president to, to uh, derail the Flynn investigation. And if that were the case, he should have referred that. He should have recused himself as a potential witness mm. and referred that to his uh, number two or number three, as to whether a preliminary inquiry should have been opened up under the attorney general guidelines. And that's a fairly low bar. But instead, he stuck it in the corner of his desk and uh, for later use. Chris, let me ask you, you, you mentioned the, the respect that you have for the former FBI director. Talk about the significance of, of who accompanied him or went to this hearing uh, with him. It was remarkable to see Hart 216, that big hearing room, packed to the gills with reporters. You saw the tables in the back of the room. There weren't a whole lot of seats behind him. But my understanding is... Uh, a number of FBI agents, a number of his now former colleagues, uh, made their way there of their own volition to sit behind him at the hearing. What did that signify to you? Well, it's, it's well known that Director Comey had a lot of empathy for the agents. He got to every field office. Uh, he, he he was very personable. You know, and Director Mueller, I, I served under him. He was more businesslike. He was more, he was all about business, and there weren't a lot of personal relationships developed. But I have utmost respect for, for Mueller and the way he handled his job. Comey was, was just uh, basically won over the, the agents in, in the office. I think there was, there was quite a bit of dissension, however, about how he handled a lot of things the further you go out from his inner circle. But I do think they appreciated the fact he got out to see them and he, and he, and he really loved being director of the FBI. Chris Becker, great to speak with you. Thank you very much uh, for the time here as we continue Thank to you. analyze the hearing yesterday before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, James Comey there in two sessions, open and uh, closed yesterday. Chris Wecker, former assistant director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, joining us on our phone line.
David Gura and Tom Keane in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. From here in New York, we're paying attention to what's going on uh, in London, in the U.S., looking over to the United Kingdom. That's something that Thomas Wright does day in and day out as a director of the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of All Measures Short of War, the Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. Thomas Wright, great to speak with you uh, once again. Congratulations uh, on the new book. And I want to start with... Uh, the opinion piece that Gary Cohn, the director of the National Economic Council, uh, and H.R. McMaster, the president's national security advisor, wrote uh, for the Wall Street Journal just a couple of weeks ago. That piece, America First, doesn't mean America alone. Those two men wrote about the arena and America's role in the arena. What does the arena look like to you today? Yeah, it's a great question coming just, you know, hours after another sort of astonishing um election results in the UK. I guess we can get on to that in a minute, but one that really no one had, had predicted. And I think what, what, what I try to argue in the book and is that I think this post-Cold War order that we saw where the world was converging on a sort of single model of an open global economy, you know, international institutions, respect for borders, um, sort of a very centrist type of politics, that that has come to an end and is unraveling. And Around the world, we sort of see the return of a more nationalist, geopolitically competitive, even mercantilist um, world. And I think that the British election was the latest uh, example of that last night, the sort of a, another rejection um, of the establishment. On the Cohn McMaster op-ed, that was, I thought, a very curious piece because it was really their effort to try to um, co-opt, in a way, the Trump America First policy and show that it was um, not, you know, as radical as some people make out, but I thought it was um, came in for an awful lot of criticism because they did sort of deride this idea of the global community, and they said the world is an inherently competitive place, and I think they didn't really give much assurance to U.S. allies um, that the U.S. will continue to play the role that it's played since World War II. How long does it take, Thomas Wright, for a president to develop a doctrine? You, you read what those two men wrote, and, and, and you can think that perhaps what they're doing is try to lay to paper uh, the belief system when it comes to foreign policy, this administration has. When you look to history, how quickly uh, can a, a policy perspective, a policy platform change, and how much staying power does it have? Well, it, it usually takes quite some time, if it appears at all. I mean, there's always sort of an elusive search for the doctrine of whatever president um, is in power. You know, the Obama doctrine really, I think, took well into the second term for people to you know, identify it as sort of this desire for restraint and the pullback from the Middle East. And the reason is, is that in the early period of any administration, there's lots of contradictory uh, actions and decisions that sort of cut in either direction. So if you remember with President Obama, you know, in his first year, he did a mini surge to Afghanistan. So that didn't very much look, that didn't really look like a strategy of restraint or pulling back. So I think it often takes time, but I think this time it will be much more difficult because there's an inherent sort of contradiction at the heart of this administration, which is the president has one set of ideas and is unique, I think, in his ideology and his temperament in the way he processes this information. And then his cabinet are actually much more traditional and mainstream. Yeah. And that's never going to be resolved, I think. That's right where I wanted to go. What's magical about your uh, book, Tom, All Measures Short of War, is you take us back to the real advent of the modern liberal thought on how America acts in the world. This goes back to Harry Truman and Dean Acheson, among among others. They invented a liberal theme coming out of World War II. Is it dead? 
I don't think it's dead. I think it's under serious stress. You know, I think it's been rejected by the current president. But um, the case I try to make in the book is if you look at it, um, sort of try to look at it objectively, it actually still offers a much better uh, way of protecting America's interests and really the interests of most countries in the world over the alternatives. Because any sort of any, you know, state of affairs has to be judged relative to the to, to the alternatives. And in this case, you know, the alternative is a series of influence order that's much more sort of 19th century style where the major powers are competing and, and, and will really be not cooperating, possibly on the verge of conflict with each other. Um, you know, the global economy will be damaged by that. There will be less trade, less openness. And I think in the long run, that's something that I think people will, uh, will be very uncomfortable with. After the, the, the U.S. elected via its president to uh, withdraw from the Paris Agreement, Scott Pruitt, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, spoke to reporters and uh, addressed the, the issue of whether or not the U.S. would have occasion to come back to the table to renegotiate that particular deal. And uh, he said, we'll always have a seat at the table. We're the United States. How do you, you, you process what he said there? And in light of what we've uh, seen here over the last four or five Months. How reparable is the the damage that we've seen to the transatlantic relationship, uh, to our relationship with NATO uh, allies? Uh, how how can you how, how how successfully do you think the U.S. can reverse some of that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I've been trying to think about recently because you know a lot of what the Trump administration is doing can be reversed. You know, Paris is a good example. Uh, the U.S. isn't technically out of Paris until 2021, which is after the next election because there's a three-year. Uh, waiting time period in, in the in the accord, um, so a future president could reverse that, and of course the future president can, you know, if there was a new Obama or somebody like that, come in and recommit America to the world and undo a lot of the damage. Um, but the interesting question I think is how what could happen that's irreversible? You know, what could break that can't be fixed? And I particularly worried about the NATO comments in that regard, because I think, you know, if an alliance is discredited, it's impossible to put back together. Um, I think on climate, there are worries that we're going to lose time, you know, very valuable time to, meet, uh, to deal with these um, problems. And, there, uh, you know, as you saw in the Middle East last week with Qatar and Saudi Arabia, you know, there's the potential of sort mm. of a side conflict that could erupt that would have major implications because of sort of U.S. Yeah. disinterest. So there's many things that I think could break. Some of them, though, are probably are reversible. Great to speak with you once again. Thomas Wright, the author of All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power, his new book. Uh, he is uh, the director of the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. In Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.